Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we're welcoming back a special guest. We have Constantine Sandus. He's director of Lex Academic, visiting professor of philosophy at the University of Hertfordshire, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. His books include The Things We Do and Why We Do Them, Philosophy of Action and Anthology, and Human Nature. And his newest book, available now, is called From Action to Ethics a pluralistic approach to reasons and responsibility. Constantine, it's a pleasure to have you back on. Thank you. Nice to see you guys again. Thank you. You too. Absolutely, man. And then, so there's a really great passage in the book, in the beginning of the book that I really liked and I wanted to start the conversation with. So Constantine wrote, in a 2021 interview conducted by Chris Heath for GQ Magazine's Happiness Project, filmmaker David Lynch found himself distinguishing between the doing of things and the work done. I'm kind of just happy in the doing of things, getting an idea or realizing an idea, working on a painting or working on a piece of sculpture, working on the film. One thing I've noticed is that many of us, we do what we call work for a goal, for a result. And in the doing, it's not that much happiness. And yet that's our life going by. It doesn't matter what your work is. You just get happy in the work. You get happy in the little things and the big things. And if the result isn't what you dreamed of or it doesn't, or it doesn't kill you if you enjoy doing it. It's mm -hmm. important that we enjoy the doing of our life. So Alan and I talk about this a lot on the show, uh, especially in relation to the podcast, because I'm so results oriented and Alan is so action or uh, well, action oriented. Yes, but he's also uh, more so focused on the process. And so you're yeah. a consequentialist. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So, okay, yeah. So we, uh, we, we get into this kind of back and forth where, like, we wonder. I mean, I guess we don't wonder because we have a uh, pretty staunch stances, but we have disagreements on what is and isn't important. So, you know, Constantine, I mean, for you, I think the question here would be, or rather, the thought before the question would be, okay, I mean, isn't it sort of obvious, right? Sort of, we do things, uh, we have results, and then kind of we get up the next day and we do them again. So, why is this so important for you, and why was it important for you to write this book and to actually look at the distinctions between, let's say, something like doing or the result of doing like why would it even matter so much hmm. yeah thanks and actually it's interesting you mentioned consequentialism because while that wasn't my my first thought those debates between different kind of theories of ethics like consequentialism and say deontology i, th I thought these kind of distinctions could sort of help with those debates so that came a, a little bit later for me but it's something we, we we can talk about so so it's interesting and it's interesting that you know, one way of talking and um, perfectly good way of talking is there's an action and then there's a result and then maybe a consequence is even further. So, so you may think like my action results in something and those results have consequences. Um, but I was kind of interested initially in sort of, um, you know, we talk about action and we all kind of, you know, know what it is to act up, up to a point. We might not all know the physiology of it or whatever, but we are, we understand what it is to um, to act, but but I was sort of interested in how different philosophers, I guess, work with without even realizing it, kind of different conceptions um, of action. And what I liked about the Lynch thing is um, you can see the work as the result of action for sure, um, but you can also um, sort of I, I'm interested in this distinction between the things we do and our doings of them, where the doings, it may be a process or it may be an event of some kind or an activity um, of some kind. So there's there's kind of my um, my drinking some water, for example, and then there's um, the thing I did, which is drink water. And, and that may seem like a really boring academic technical distinction, um, but when it comes to kind of theories of ethics and we talk about right action, 
um, I think a lot matters, and we can talk about this um, in, in a moment, which of these two things um, we're talking about and which theory comes up as more plausible may depend on which conception of action we're interested in. So it may be that um, if I'm interested in my act of doing something, then I'll be more interested in what was my intention, what was my motive and so on. Whereas if I'm interested in the thing done and its effects, then that lends itself more to say consequentialist theories. Um, I don't know if that answered your, 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 well, here, your question, here, but that's- here, Here's then what I would ask. So, I mean, in academia, obviously for anybody who's ever went to college, I mean, it's all divided. You know, you could take a class in psychology, obviously cognitive psychology, whatever. Uh, and you can also take a class in, let's say ethical philosophy. But from what you're saying is that it's all, you use the term symbiotic, that you actually need to have a fundamental theory of action before you start thinking about ethical concerns. So why is that? Because I mean, in academia, in academia and just the way we normally think of things, right? People would just say, well, okay, action is kind of obvious. You know, we just do these things and let's actually talk about the reasons for them and whether they're right or wrong. So why would we actually first need to understand what action is or what, uh, not just exactly what action is. Um, let me actually make this a little bit more nuanced. Why do we actually have to have a uh, particular perspective of action? Not necessarily saying, because I don't want to use the word understand, because it might not be the right one or the truth or whatever, but why would you feel that you actually need to first have a fundamental perspective of it before actually thinking about the ethical issues? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Thanks. So, so um when I when I was in grad school, um, I I was working on reasons for action, um, and a lot of the debate um, on reasons for action um, was in philosophy of mind. So people would talk of philosophy of mind or philosophy of mind and action. Mm -hmm. And um, I, certainly at the time, the most popular theory in in philosophy of mind was a guy called Donald Davidson, who who thought actions were events. So we would talk of action as an event with mental causes so the causes might be a belief and a desire or, or anything else that people would refer to as mental states if you were a physicalist they'd be brain states if you were a dualist they'd be something else mm -hmm. but there would be these like mental states and they would cause bodily behavior so in a way action actually fits into the old mind body problem it was all about how does this mental stuff um interact um with this physical stuff this we get bodily movement so you have mind on the one hand bodily behavior on the other where's the causal interaction um and you have like a physical event and maybe a mental event or a mental process um and so that that was kind of what was going on in philosophy of mind at the time but then if you look at um ethics people talk of things like right action what is the right action Sure. And I kind of, I would sort of read this lit and there would be reasons for what makes an action right. So there was a kind of reasons literature in ethics that was kind of quite different from the reasons literature in philosophy of mind or psychology. And I was kind of reading these two things because um, I was in a quite ethics orientated department. So I was doing this kind of mind and action stuff and reading this ethics. I was kind of thinking, this is really weird because if, if actions are events, like physical events, what does it mean for an event to be morally right or wrong? That just seemed like what we call a category mistake or, or, mm. or something. I can understand why an event might be good or bad, as in we might think, you, you, you know, a devastating hurricane is, has negative value. 
but you wouldn't call it morally right or wrong and unless you think it's an act of God and, and it's God who's morally right or wrong. But when we think of events, they seem the wrong kinds of things to kind of impute moral um, sort of language to. Um, and I was sort of trying to think, well, what are our ethicists talking about action in a different sense from, from people in mind and psychology? Um, and it, there wasn't much analysis of action. It was almost like the, the moral philosophers thought, oh, just plug in your favorite theory of action. We're not interested in that stuff. We're just interested in, in what makes an action right. And I kind of thought, but hang on a minute, what makes an action right or what it means for an action to be right, we surely need to have a good conception of what it is we're talking about here. And then I was looking at these different theories and it seemed to me that why is it that some people think intention or, and motive are very important to the rightness of an action, like virtue ethicists, for example. Right. And consequentialists think not only is it not is not important, it's completely irrelevant. And all that matters is the consequences. And I started sort of wondering whether they really had the same notion of action in mind. And that's the sense in which I wasn't out to defend one theory over another, but to show that both were right or both were wrong, because they, they were sort of um, a bit confused about or unclear about what it was they were talking about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, hence, of course, the need for sort of a pluralistic view on it, right? I, I, I'm with you on that. Uh, as far as uh, when I think about actions and the reasons for those actions, or rather the reasons that come with those actions, I actually, I'm not, I wouldn't say I align myself with the consequent, consequentialists, uh, because I think reasons matter, intent matters, the motivation matters, absolutely. However, there is something to me, uh, like at least the thought that's occurring to me, which is that uh, when people come up with a reason for an action, mm. sometimes it could be uh, th uh, via a backwards rationalization in the sense that, like, say someone needs to feel good or feel okay with uh, emotionally um, uh, motivated action, let's say, and then they invent reasons to sort of justify or rationalize that action. And then then you could sort of question how important is the reason that they come up with if it is perhaps after the fact. However, that's only in the case of backwards rationalization. There, there could be other sorts of reasoning that may be involved. Can I, can I, so I actually, I want to interject because I, now I feel like this is the question I've been uh, kind of itching to ask uh, Khan. So, okay. So now, you know, when you're saying something along the lines of, uh, you know, like the, or you're saying like, there's a distinction between, uh, let's say, you know, when we do or don't backwards rationalize, you know, and this is what I really want to get your take on Khan. Let's talk about Benjamin Libet, man. Let's talk about the fact mm. that it's all backwards rationalization. The fact that the matter for a lot of these, you know, I don't want to maybe say a lot. Maybe that's kind of an over uh, overgeneralization here. But for at least some studies, what they indicate is that, you know, we always make decisions and make decisions before we're actually aware of why we're doing what we're doing. So isn't everything backwards rationalization? And if that's the case, then does ethics even really matter? I know that's going to, you know, I I'm kind of stirring <laughs> the pot here a little bit. So what I do. Um, what you think. Um, so I'm probably more skeptical about Libet's experiments than I am about some of the um, cognitive and social psychology about backwards rationalization. Um, though we, we can talk about Libet and their important experiments, of course. Um, um, but to, to sort of go back to Alan and, and, and then re return to 
Blibbit's like a more extreme case in, yeah. in, 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 in a way. So I think these experiments, um, and there is one chapter in the book about this. So, um, so I use the word confabulations, which is in the literature, but it's very similar to, to what you mean. So I think it's just the fact, there's no point denying that we are creatures who are very easily self-deceived and in the kind of ways um, you say. So I think any account of reasons for action that somehow ignores this is not is not going to be plausible so it's we've you know that that has got to be true um what gets i think more complicated is how the self-deception works and what this means for any sort of account of reasons for action if that's the right thing to be to be aiming for so in some of these kind of experiments i think the the data is overwhelmingly in favor of of the fact that we are self-deceived way more often than than we think but I, but i at the same time i think the way the psychologists describe the conclusions of the experiments um is maybe ironically itself a little self mm-hmm. self-deceived so i think what happens is so there's a famous experiment with with like um stockings in the supermarket um and they have these identical stockings, but they don't tell people that they're identical. Um, and I can't remember eight times out of 10, nine times out of 10. Um, initially, they thought that um, the thing that was making the difference was that people preferred the stockings to their right than the stockings to their left, mm. right? Um, so they had a kind of right to left bias. Um, and they would ask people, why are these stockings better? And they would say something about the quality, even though it was the same stockings and they'd switch them around <laughs> between experiments. So I think yeah. as it turned out, I think actually um, they thought it was a right to left bias, but it was actually a temporal bias. So it turns out that they were showing them the left one first and then the right ones. Mm. And it turns out people prefer the last thing they've mm. seen. And that's kind of really interesting. Like, when you think of Oscars and how many films closer to the deadline yes. um, are released and so on. So, so it could be that it's not a right to left bias. It's a temporal bias. I mean, and, and a lot of stuff, you know, people would pay a lot of money to have their items displayed on one side of the supermarket versus another, or your advert on the right hand side of a magazine compared to the left. Right. So this stuff is kind of very important for, for, for people in, in sales. Um, so I think that, all of that has got to be true. Um, then the psychologists will say things like, they'll use the expression, the real reason. So they'll say the real reason why the person bought these stockings is not that they were better quality. How could it be? They were the same stuff. It's mm-hmm. that they were the last pair they saw or the ones on the right-hand side or whatever the correct um, kind of explanation is. Um, and and it's at that point that I sort of, I get it. Uh, like, I think they're onto something, but mm-hmm. I think now I'm a pluralist about reasons. So now I think, well, there are reasons why um, we do the things we do, but there are also um, the, the thing that we we think we're acting in the light of, perhaps falsely. So I, so, if you go, if you just say the reasons are the left-right thing, you ignore something very important, which is that the person really does believe these stockings are higher quality, right, maybe right. smoother. Mm-hmm. And and I think so. If you go all the way with 
with with the sort of um, backward rationalization or whatever, um, it's not that that's incorrect, but it can't be the full story because part of what's going on, part of what's motivating me isn't that they're to the right. It's that I think falsely as it happens that these are high. And, and, and I think mm. that can't be lost from the story. And, and the way I see it is that the, the psychologist story or the, the story in, in the, the experiment show in Cogsci gives an explanation of why I think the stockings are higher quality. So, so it's nothing about the stockings. It's the fact that they're to the left or the last pair I saw or whatever. Um, so I think what we get is we get a kind of nested explanation. So the psychology is very important, but it doesn't actually give me, I, I'm still motivated by the thought that, that these, that this is tastier yogurt or, or, um, right, better right. quality stockings or whatever and I or that it's the better film and the actress was better or whatever so I, I think the directing was better I think so I, I think we shouldn't ignore these and that's why I'm a kind of pluralist I think we've got different notions of action different notions of reason reasons for action and then things get messy when we try to sort of see how to fit all these things together so the thing I'm against I guess is kind of monistic simplistic theories um of this on either side of debates um i haven't talked about libit yet but i've been talking for a while so <laughs> well super super quickly go for it. i no i love that because that intuitive thought that it, you know that i had to ask about backwards rationalization that was just sort of a surface level thought now that we actually kind of broke it down and took it you know to its limit of mm -hmm. course you start to think ah well either way there's some sort of motivation or desire or belief mm -hmm. that kind of is anyway at the origin of whatever reason you come up right, with right. therefore that's valid you shouldn't throw that out because of just that that simplistic oh it's backwards rationalization right. therefore reasons don't matter yeah like that's i, you know. I think that's right because you've got a choice you either have to say the belief is epiphenomenal as in it does nothing it's, yeah. We think it's part of the explanation, but it isn't. But then human psychology looks really weird if you remove that belief, because it seems to be doing something. I wouldn't buy the stuff if I thought it was worse or the same. So mm. it seems to be doing something. So I don't want to say it's a phenomenal. So it must have some motivational work. At mm. the same time, that's not to discount the explanation given um by the cog scientists who've done these experiments so there's something sure. very important there namely if if you switch them around my beliefs would completely change i mean that's yeah. that's huge yeah. right right yeah and what's so interesting is uh i mean wow there's so many directions this is such a fascinating conversation because there are like so many directions that we could take it but you know so the thing that i'm thinking about is in terms of ancient philosophy you know there's this socratic belief i think it was socrates not aristotle where the, maybe it was aristotle no i think it was socrates shit it's one of them where they said oh people don't knowingly do things that are bad right and then so what's so interesting is when you get into the field of let's say psycho psychotherapy psychotherapy psychology not uh psychology uh experimental and so you get into the field and you know people often ask Ask, oh, you know, why is it that people like self-harm or what they call self-defeating behavior? So like for an outsider's perspective, there's uh, this sort of conception of, uh, you know, like the person is damaging their lives or damaging their relationships, whatever. But I think it's hard for people to see. I mean, listen, unless they have these problems themselves, obviously, which a lot of people do. But uh, I think even by the way, if they do, they could still kind of project and say, well, I don't know how you're doing that. I would never do that, even though <laughs> they would do that. Right. But the point is to say that it's hard for a lot of people to see why people do things that are self-defeating. And so going back to that Socratic notion of like, let's say people People don't uh, 
like actively or intentionally do bad things because maybe they're misguided or whatnot. You get this a lot in psychotherapy where you have somebody who does, you know, something that seems self-defeating. But if you were to ask them, and let's say, you know, they were being honest and had some degree of self-awareness, they would say, well, that the reason why it's not self-defeating for me is this, right? So you mentioned the distinction between, um, I think it was weakness and rashness, right? So, and there's this understanding that like, and even the term weakness is something we could get into because I, I don't know if it's necessarily weakness, you know, because you can say, okay, why is a person not disciplined or why aren't they doing the things that they need to do? And a lot of people have argued, well, you know, the reason why I can never be a therapist is because it's like, we know the right thing to do and, you know, these people are just not doing it. But the thing I think that people really, going back to my initial point, uh, the thing that people really find hard to understand is that it's not necessarily a weakness per se. So going into this context and the, this concept of belief, if you were to ask a person like, hey, why are you doing this thing again that's self-defeating? They would say, well, it just doesn't feel that way to me. So what you're saying is self-defeating for me has a purpose. So the intention of, let's say, even self-harm, right? So I'm in a lot of emotional pain. And so when I self-harm, it's actually preferable to the emotional pain. So yes, I understand that maybe you don't understand what that level of pain is like, but I don't really have many choices here. So uh, the psychoanalyst, Nancy McWilliams, she said, um, I'm going to butcher this quote, so I'm going to, I'm not going to say verbatim, but she said something along the lines of like, you know, for the people who are, you know, quote unquote, masochistic or whatever, she's like, a lot of times, you know, they're kind of, they're held responsible for their actions. And people say, well, you are the reason why your life is this, right? And she's like, but when you actually ask these people, that's like the furthest thing from their minds. And it's not so much that, okay, well, you know, they're just not willing to take responsibility or they're not able to. I mean, yes, that's some part of it. I'm not going to just say like, you know, they're complete victims, obviously. Very few people are. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, what 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 the um, what the person feels or thinks is that what they're doing is self-protective. So the reasons there, again, may not make sense to you, but they make sense to the other person. So fundamentally for therapy to work, which is not really my point, but I'll say it anyway. Fundamentally for therapy to work, you really first need to understand why the person is doing what they're doing, what their intentions are, what their reasons are, what sort of like uh, pain they're essentially trying to avoid. Uh, let's say, you know, what, what what their even kind of goals are, you know, maybe even if they're short term, because they usually are. But the point is to say that it's so interesting that for people who have, let's say, um, a kind of a firm or very rigid understanding of what action should be or what reason should be for action, it's often hard for them to see that like, yes, a person on the surface might be doing something that seems self-defeating or like, you know, let's say for everyday Joe on the street seems kind of baffling, right? But those people actually have, not just in their understanding, but they have good reasons for doing what they're doing. So it's like, uh, not to go on to like too much about it, but because I do want to kind of ask more questions about Libet, I want to get back to that. But what's so interesting about that, and actually, let me let me actually tie this into Libet. So then you'll have somebody in psychotherapy, let's say, who's, you know, on the couch, and they're thinking, okay, so, you know, you want me to start doing this, right? So you want me, uh, I don't know, to start dating, or you want me to start, start trusting people, right? But here I come from this environment where that was impossible. So I grew up in an environment where I, you know, my parents seem to have like not really cared about me. Uh, let's say, you know, people abused me, whatever it is, right? And then so like going into Libet and the fact that, you know, we kind of have like these decisions that are not really our decisions. I guess I then wonder, you know, how is it possible for, first, I mean, people do change. I understand that. But how is it possible then to think like, oh, people should just change or people should just like think better or think more critically? So I guess I want to, this is the question I want to post to you then, Khan. So in your understanding of reasons, right, where do you find that people often get stuck with understanding other people's reasons? Uh, does it even really matter? Uh, or, you know, in terms of just reasoning in general, right? Why do people seem to find it super hard to understand that, yes, here are these reasons that like, right, they might not make sense to you. They might not make sense in this context. But in terms of the way human beings are, they actually do make sense. I could spend the whole evening on just this question. Right, right, right. Uh, um, 
First thing, it's really, really interesting that you weren't sure if it was Socrates or Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason it's interesting is Socrates says in, in more than one of Plato's dialogues, um, we never knowingly do wrong. Right. Um, and, and, and it's interesting that it's kind of wrong rather than just against our better judgment or something like that. Um, so, so that is what I was, that's the Socratic principle and it's in Socrates. However, what's interesting about your not being sure is that Aristotle initially sets out to prove Socrates wrong. Mm. So Aristotle in in Nicomachean Ethics writes that, of course, we often knowingly do wrong. And then he starts going in an explanation of how this happens. And the explanation involves um, what's normally translated as clouded judgment. So there's knowledge. I do know that it's wrong but my knowledge is clouded by something in the moment, typically desire for Aristotle, but it needn't be. It could be fear. It could be something else, right? So so, so I have this knowledge um, that I know this is wrong, but in the moment, the knowledge is clouded. And then he tries to kind of explain what it is for knowledge to be clouded. And by the end, he literally says, I think we should conclude Socrates was right after all. Um, <laughs> and so it is, it's in Aristotle and Socrates. Both, yeah, it's both. I love so, it. So, yeah. so you're, that's why you're not, you're not <laughs> sure which one. Well, it's both. It's just Aristotle sets out to sort of argue against it. But, but, um, but what we do get in, in Aristotle, and I think this relates to what you're saying about therapy, is that it's not that the he calls it acratic, you know, I think you're right. Weak is not a good word for what's going on for various reasons, but weak willed is, is not necessarily the right way to describe this, but the, the acratic person, the, the person who acts against, let's say their own better judgment in a moment where maybe that judgment is clouded. So in the moment they don't think they're, so there's a separate question whether I can even in the moment know it's wrong and still do it. Mm. But according to Aristotle, that's not the case. So in the moment, I, I don't realize it's wrong because that that knowledge is momentarily cut away from me. Um, even then, it's not like I'm acting for no reason at all, like I'm random or something. I've got a, I've got a pretty good reason to to do the thing I'm doing. It's just that there may be more reason not to do it or more reason to do something else. And that's what's kind of clouded from me in the moment. And even if you believe, nah, this clouding thing is wrong. Sometimes I know I shouldn't do this and I just don't care. I kind of have this view. I think sometimes it's not about clouded knowledge. It's about whether you care enough about doing the right thing in the moment. And, and, and suppose someone just doesn't care, it's still, they still have some reason for doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's very important when you were talking about kind of understanding others and maybe self-understanding as well. It, 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 it can't be the case that all these kind of actions, these acratic actions are for, for no reason at all. I mean, sometimes we might act on a whim or for no reason at all, but that, that's unlikely to be what's going on in therapy, right? right it's the, right. And, and finding out those reasons and, and looking at those reasons in more detail is going to be important. Um, 
before we get to Libit, I actually, so I spent, you know, the last sort of, apart from the last couple of years where I've been doing a, a different project, I most of my time in academia, I've been working on action and reasons and these kind of things. And Wittgenstein are kind of on the side, though he's what got me into action in the first place anyway. So I've been working on those things. And I used to have the view that once you, or I just kind of assumed this, it wasn't even something I had as a kind of, I thought it was a view to be had. I just thought it was, I just assumed it as obvious that once you know someone's reason for doing something, including your own, then you've understood that person. So I used to think that, you know, if I'm like, hey, Leon, why would you prefer Sacred Heart to uh, lock up the wolves or mm -hmm. something? Um, and then you give me your reason. I used to think now I've understood why. Mm. Um, and maybe self-understanding works the same way. We Once we figure out what the real reason, you know, we were talking about self-deception earlier. So maybe I was self-deceived and now I know the real reason for my action, you know, bearing in mind all those qualifications we discussed earlier. Right. Then I've got self-understanding. But, but now, so the project I'm working on now is I've sort of, it's still in this domain, but I'm interested, I'm working now, now on understanding and self-understanding rather than reasons for action. And the reason why I think this is a separate issue is sometimes you want to understand someone and they give you their reason for action and they seem even more alien. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I say, why do you like that? And you tell me, oh, because the guitar playing is much better on that album. And I'm like, really? <laughs> now I really don't get you. How could you possibly think that? Mm -hmm. um, so actually, understanding someone's reason for action can make things worse sometimes right. in the you know in the case certainly in the case of musical taste but maybe in politics may, may, maybe in ethics that's what i was thinking uh, yeah yeah so so now i'm kind of a more pessimistic about the thought that you achieve understanding of others or self-understanding simply through um kind of revealing the real reasons or something like that it's not that they're not important but i i used to think they could do all the work right and and now I kind of think that that can't be right. I don't know. I I, I tend to think mm -hmm. that uh, when you take it a step further after understanding their reason, if if you can demonstrate your understanding of that reason to that person, it then seems to build a rapport with that person because then they have the feeling of being understood, and therefore, the yeah the sort of the bond that that uh, engenders yeah. or rather reinforces kind of at least gives the feeling of understanding did you truly understand them though right i suppose can i not can i interject yeah. so here's what i love about what you're saying so i'm actually more like you now you're a fucking consequentialist so what you're <laughs> saying is like hey here's this process of intimacy right like you know therapy what you would call bonding with the patient you know psychoanalysis right you would say we're getting deeper and deeper dude i gotta tell you man so the times that and listen i'm not a trained psychoanalyst so just to be clear but the times that uh you know i've worked under this sort of uh i don't 
want to say guys, but like under the framework of psychoanalysis, like what it does, and this is a Yalom quote. So Yalom would say like, it's the relationship that heals, right? So as you're working towards like uncovering layers and layers of the person, honestly, the only thing that really matters is that they really like you, right? So, or that you really like them. So ultimately here's where I, I really, <laughs> yeah, here's what I really like about what the two of you are saying. So Constantine is arguing, listen, from a factual perspective, from a more analytical, you know, deconstructive perspective, we're probably never really going to know what the reasons are, right? And what I love about your perspective is essentially that uh, that doesn't really matter, right? In terms of building rapport, building a connection, as Yalom would say, healing, you need the relationship. I mean, ideally, uh, I mean, you should care about the fact. But the I, point is, they're not. It's they're 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 not tangible. They're like they're flimsy, you know. I, I suppose. Well, right. The I feel like the relationship is yeah. yeah is more important. But then, is it just all about the process to getting to that relationship? I mean, uh, you could say, I, I guess you could break it down that right. way. I just, I would just say that to, to achieve that understanding, you have to uh, genuinely just sort of demonstrate that, um, like by either restating what it is yes. that they, they told you, or in some way summarizing and then saying, is that right? Like, oh, okay. Uh, so wait, so you like that band because of the way they play that guitar. Interesting. Okay, what do you like about that? Uh-huh. Oh, so you like it because of that solo that yeah, he right. does, that one solo really gets you, right? right? Okay, interesting. I like, you know, I like Bob Dylan and I like this song and maybe the blah 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 and then who knows? Right, right, right. Who knows? Right. And then, yeah. so, you know, Con, the question that I would have for you is that I guess if we can't really, like, let's say if psychoanalysis is uh, outside of the relationship part, you know, let's say if we, in terms of fact seeking or fact finding, if it is kind of a fruitless endeavor, right? So then I guess what are we then doing here, right? So when we try to learn about ourselves, we try to learn about people, and like, let's say we do somehow or other become more and more confused, or at the very least, uh, more and more ignorant in some ways, right? It's sort of like the further we go, the further away we are from the truth. I guess, is there still a point of trying to uncover what people are what they do or now are we getting into libid territory and you're like hey it doesn't actually really matter okay that's a big big question yeah. so 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 um i mean that you can be optimistic or 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 pessimistic about about the kind of goals of therapy so 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 like so like zizek for example thinks that um the point of therapy is the opposite of what we think. It's that it actually, it's not to change you. It's that it allows you to carry on as you are. It kind of mentally allows you to do that in a way yeah, very Freudian. you might not be able to, right? So there's that kind of view. And then there's the view of, no, no, I'm going to change my bad habits or, or whatever, or get out of this um, particular kind of um you know, corner I'm in or, 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 or whatever. And, and, you know, as a, as a pluralist, I'm not going to say it's, it's one or the other. And, and these things can have different, different effects um, for different people. But, but I, I'd say I wouldn't want to give up on, like, as a general rule, give up on the, the very idea that you can understand another person or, or understand yourself. Because I, I think if we, if we give up that, um, we just start getting you know conflict culture wars whatever misunderstandings mm -hmm. um and worse so so i mean that can't be we can't just be like oh forget all that um that said i think i think you know in a lot of um, in in psychology as well as philosophy and a lot of other other kind of trainings we're sort of trained to think that 
if we have the right theory and think hard enough, we can solve this. And I think mm. it's very important to understand that actually sometimes there's nothing there, like there's mm. nothing to solve. Uh, 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 and, and you can go nuts trying to figure out another person or yourself or or whatever, or why you did that or why they did that or whatever. And you can go completely... And the answer might be they don't even know themselves right. or, or it really was something more, um, mm. I don't know about Libitian, but it, it, it really, um, I, I, you know, at the level you're after, it really was because you were standing to the right rather than the left or, mm. or whatever, right? I mean, with all the other qualifications and we're looking for this rational explanation and actually it's, it just doesn't exist. Um, but even that realization helps to understand more. You know, part of what we're trying to understand is, is, is how we behave. And if sometimes we don't do things, um, if the explanation of our behavior isn't what we originally thought, or it's something irrelevant, or there is no explanation or whatever, then mm -hmm. that helps with understanding um, as well, I suppose. Um, well, then, then Oh, so I, I want to ask you a question then. So, okay, let's say in that kind of experiment, you know, with right and left, I mean, there's another really famous one with like a taco and burrito. So let's say, you know, people have a choice and then they pick one over the other. And then after the fact, they're like, oh, the burrito is so much better. Or the taco is so much better. It's literally the same shit, you know? So, okay, what happens then in kind of in your research, right? In your understanding, what happens then when you reveal these reasons for to people, right? So when you say, oh, hey, uh, it seems like you chose this because it was the last one. So, okay, the guitars, right? Actually, let's use that because you use that as an example. What if... Uh, let's say you are a uh, some sort of composer. Let's say you're a musician, right? And you were like, no, no, Leon, I, I can tell you. So the guitar riffs on like Sacred Heart are pretty much the same as in Lock Up the Wolves. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah, you know what? You are an expert. Let me give it a, ch let me give it a chance, right? So then I go back and I listen to it and I'm like, shit. Yeah, you know what? You're right. It does virtually sound the same. So like, what do we do with that? Like, so does that revelation actually help people? Do they start like digging further into reasons? Uh, do they start even questioning them do they care about them so really the question is like okay so if let's say self-knowledge or some form of self-knowledge exists what happens when people find out that they are making somewhat i don't want to say it's irrational because i mean it makes sense but uh i'll just use it for lack of a better term but like let's say they are making an irrational choice meaning that like they are choosing a taco over burrito because they have to do something and then after the fact you know in order to reduce some of the tension that they're feeling they're just saying no no the taco is way better i definitely didn't want the burrito so does it matter that we're revealing that to people and then like does it help them kind of not just reframe their choices, but um, it would reframe their understanding of their choices, but also does it do anything for their reasons, right? Does it alter their reasons for choosing? Yeah, I think it probably does. But 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 like I, li I like your music example, because what it shows is it's not that reasons are irrelevant, but what it shows is that sometimes you're going to get understanding by effectively having the same or a similar experience as someone else. So you you can tell me your reasons and I can disagree or whatever and then but you then you keep playing the piece of music to me mm -hmm. and then I may or may not flip right so it may be that suddenly I can see what you see or hear what you hear when I couldn't before and no amount of rationalization was going to do that it's it's the listening to the piece of music that does it and I have a kind of like gestalt switch or something right so suddenly I now hear it differently and I love this song I used to hate or vice versa or whatever. But other times, yeah, you, know, you keep telling me and I keep playing it. You know, we're made, we're, we're not the same. It's not going to, 
the person I am and the person you are, it's just not going to, there's, the reasons will run out and nothing is going, going to, going to do it. Mm. Um, but I do think that, that these kind of ex experiments, yeah, of, they're going, they're going to, for one, they're going to put self doubt in you. Like, trust me, like uh, after, you know, I spent a lot of time with these experiments. You then go, you're then like, you know, you spend the day reading this stuff and then you're, you're, you know, you take your break and you're walking down the freezer aisle. How can you, how can you not start thinking, huh, why do I think I prefer this, right? You're gonna, so it's gonna, it's gonna add, that doesn't mean that self-deception miraculously disappears or anything like that. And, and um, you know, Freud would be the first to say you can bring all this stuff to consciousness and that in itself is not going to change right. your behavior, right? right? Immediately. Well, but you start to work with it. Yeah, I, I would. No, yeah, so I'm sorry because I interrupted you. Well, Freud would actually have said that it will never change your behavior. I think for Freud, the understanding there was that the only reason you're making it conscious is because you're ultimately accepting, you know, these kind of sewed off parts of yourself that are affecting you psychologically, you know, kind of they're causing these psychogenic illnesses, whether, you know, hysteria at the time, some sort of somatic disorder, whatever. So, yeah, I mean, Freud was actually pretty, not just a materialist. I mean, he was, a, I mean, as I'm sure you know, I don't want to sort of preach to the choir here, but he was a hard determinist, you know. So this was a person that didn't really believe people could change. So his whole thing was like, yeah, you should just accept yeah. yourself as you are. So that's why I wonder. And that's kind of why I'm asking about the experiments. I'm wondering like, okay, like when people really realize this about themselves, does it actually, I mean, that you know of obviously, because I mean, I don't know kind of what other research there is, but like, I wonder, do these insights actually help people? So like, let's say if I, again, know that I'm really just, you know, so I'll actually make this a little bit more personal because I want to make this make more sense. Uh, so like for me, I'm in terms of my decision-making, I am extremely conservative. So I need there to be an answer. So uh, whatever. I'm not going to get into this too much. I have something called OCPD. So it's obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Uh, so I need there to be an answer, right? So what that means is that for me, the reasons aren't even that important. So as long as I can make a decision, because it's so hard for me to make choices, as long as I can explain and justify it in some way, I'm going to do that, right? So if you were to give me an experiment or you know, present the results of an experiment and you were to say, well, you know, listen, the reasons why people would do this over this, like is because like they need to make a choice and they really struggle with decision-making and like, let's say they need to explain, again, backwards rationalization. They need to explain after the fact why they made one choice over the other, but really they were just really anxious and they just needed to make a quick choice, right? And you know, taco and burrito, you're like, oh my God, these look the same. So what I'm saying is that for somebody like me, I'm not sure that that would affect me. I think I would just go on living like I normally do because my mm -hmm. personality style is so entrenched. So yeah, I was wondering from your perspective, does this stuff actually at least in a minor way affect people in any way? Or is it more like with somebody like me, when even though you know this stuff, you're like, man, eh, so what? So I th I, that's a very interesting case because I, I think it shows that the answer, and in a way you've answered the question, it's got to be that it will make a difference to some people and not others, or it may be to some people some of the time and not others. And um, like the, you know, with, with different creatures and, and it may be that if you function a certain way, then that kind of information is not that relevant to you. And if you're a different, if you function in a sort of even slightly different way, maybe that revelation will blow your mind, and you'll be a born again rationalist mm. or, or 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 whatever, right? So think things can people can can kind of flip in the in in these ways. I mean, I don't think these things are going to like immediately change one's one's preferences, um, but in these cases, you you know, the more self-deceived we are about the very sort of 
um, qualities of the thing that we think is making us want to do one thing rather than another, then that knowledge could, for some people, um, um, make make a difference. I, I suppose. I mean, we'd have to look at very particular cases rather than in the abstract. For me, it made a difference personally. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, for example, uh, even the concept of backwards rationalization. Mm. Okay, well, when I found out that I would in sometimes invent reasons for my emotionally motivated actions, <laughs> I would then think, ah, so I'm deceiving myself sometimes. Ah, okay, maybe these uh, reasons I'm coming up with are not the reasons why I'm doing these things. Then I start to question the actions themselves. Then little by little, from that observation, maybe by looking closely at my actions, maybe they slightly alter just from the act of perception. Sure. Okay, that's one. Two, let's say, like Eastern philosophical concepts, like, uh, let's say, of, uh, uh, okay, let's talk about like the ego, for instance, right? Okay, uh, depending what definition you're working with, let's say we're working with the definition of a voice inside of your head or identification with a belief or thought and making that the same as you and believing that this running narrative you have in your mind is is literally you uh, speaking to yourself, but actually maybe it's not necessarily that. Maybe these are just sort of either it could be ruminating thoughts, intrusive thoughts, or perhaps just these sort of uh, thoughts that run on automatic that if, for example, you know, when I was introduced to that concept of ego, oh, now I'm not all of a sudden believing in all of these narratives that I had in my head, which actually drastically altered uh, my relationship to other people, my my own thoughts about myself or the environment, and having that sort of self-knowledge actually yeah. helped in that sense. Yeah, right? yeah. I got you. And I would even argue for you, learning a lot of different concepts in psychology probably did arm you with ways to you know, slightly alter your behavior, although it might not alter your obsessive compulsive personality yeah, disorder. Right. Maybe there are things, I mean, who knows? I actually, maybe I'm being too suggestive, but yeah, you never know. Like, yeah. So Constantine, you know, and then um, because we really I want to really focus on libid. Right. So, I mean, you know, right. with, li with libid. Right. I mean, the understanding, I think, uh, with hard determinism is, is there's often this misconception of like hard determinism means people can't change, which is not actually what it means. So it means that they're just factors causing the change, whatever that is. Right. So I guess, uh, you know, in terms of just again, reasons. Right. So libid would argue that, I mean, the reasons are kind of uh, they're more sort of external. Right. And even though, again, you think that, uh, you know, you sort of uh, you're choosing or whatever it's really kind of your mind in some ways making itself up which obviously seems uh, counterintuitive because you're like well you are your mind right but fundamentally it's like this uh not auto i mean i guess automatic is the best term for it but it is this automatic process where it's like yes it's not that again hard determinism does not mean that people things don't change what it means is that the environment pretty much causes them to change right so i guess i would ask you then in terms of reasons again so you know so the hard determinists would argue well you know the reasons are kind of like you would say the term you use is epiphenomenal right they don't really matter that much so libet would say well i mean yes the reasons matter in the sense that they make a they cause right and they make you choose something over the other but ultimately like the reasons aren't really within your control and the way we think of you right it's really like a kind of external process going on that's affecting you and again after the fact you're like oh well hey that's the reason so yeah i guess my question then for you would be what do you think about libet and that notion of this really kind of mechanical universe and a mechanical mind that essentially you again there is no real you you it's the the you that you think is you that that's choosing these things for you. <laughs> um, it's like a horror film. Um, right. <laughs> um, 
I, I, I will, I'm going to disappoint you a bit on, on, on Livid because I'm not a massive um, fan, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a while since I read Libet, but but there's, I guess, three things that I'm skeptical about in um, in, in Libet. One is, um, I just remembered that because Alan uses the word suggestive. Now, if you look at the experiments, there's something very suggestive in the way they're conducted because Libet um, and, and the other people doing them asks the subject things like, when did you feel the onset of the intention or something like that? And, and the truth of the matter is that in our daily actions, we don't feel an onset of intention. We don't even know what it is to feel the onset or of volition or, 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 or whatever. But when you're in a, in a, you know, a lab and you're, you're being, and, and someone, a person in authority, you know, there are different experiments about what happens when people in authority speak to you. And the person in authority tells you, when did you feel the volition or the intention or whatever it is he's, he's doing? You feel mm-hmm. this pressure and then, and then you're sort of like, oh, now yeah. kind of thing. So that's one thing where, where, where there's some reason to be, to be skeptical about. Um, the, the second reason is that if you look at the details in Libet, he's talking milliseconds, right? Mm-hmm. We're not yep. talking, we're not talking seconds, right. we're talking milliseconds. And now that would be of interest if the, if, if the decision was a millisecond, if, if, if the thing that Libet thinks is doing the work is a millisecond before the intention, say, or the volition, if there are such things. But it isn't. It's a millisecond before the verbal expression of the intention. Well, that that's not a surprise. It takes at least a millisecond to open your mouth, hmm. right? So, so what we're actually kind of measuring, it's not like he's got the, the decision and the, right. and the feeling of intention. He's, all, all he's got is verbal reports. Well, of course, the verbal report is... I'm su- I'm surprised it's it's not more than a millisecond, quite um, quite frankly. So 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 first we have the the kind of suggestive problem, then we have the problem of kind of timing, right? What what it is um, that that's being, and, and then third, which I kind of touched upon anyway, is is, is the question of um, what it is for there to you know what do we even mean by volition or or intention or or whatever so it's not i mean i think these the experiments are important in various ways because they if nothing else they they allow us to kind of think of all these things and see how much of it is kind of a temporary you know in libid everything is very temporal and kind of think of you know how does how, how does this work he's working with a notion that intention precedes action there's a lot of philosophers who think intention and action can't be separated mm-hmm. in this way. It's not that the one causes the other. It's that an action is just the outer expression of, of an intention. Um, the way a smile is the outer expression of happiness. It's not caused um, right. by... So, that, so, so, the, what, what's, so I, I don't want to sort of say, oh, Libet, it's all rubbish or whatever. But I, I do have these kind of... Uh, I, um, I, said, I said you wouldn't like it. No, no, by the way, so do you know who Canon Sheldon is? Uh, no, tell me. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. So Kenan was on our podcast. I think it was now about over a year ago. So Kenan actually had a really great criticism against Livid. So Kenan Sheldon is a big proponent of free will. Uh, he's one of the founders of positive psychology. Right. So yeah, yeah. So Kenan's argument, listen, I'm going to butcher it. It was a long time ago, but I'll try my best because uh, and I'll try to get it in a nutshell. So Kenan said something along the lines of like, he's like, okay, here's what Livid kind of failed to account for. So even though yes, may, so uh, by the way, he actually doesn't discount that like uh, the brain states influence behavior. He's like, but that's not the real question here. Again, I apologize to Ken if I'm butchering this. So, but so he said something along the lines of he's like, yes, but that's not the real question. He's like, because these people were already primed for that. So he's like, before the fact, right? When you told, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when you told the person, like, hey, you know, like I want you to do this, right? And are you okay with doing that? And the person says, Yes, I am okay with doing that. So they already know that at this point, like when this person asks me this question, I've already made the decision. Exactly. With that, yes, yeah. So that was his major criticism. He's like, okay, but then if the person is making the decision beforehand, how are you saying he's making the decision in that particular section uh set sorry set uh section second oh uh, so if he already made that decision beforehand wouldn't you then take that into account like why does lipid only account for the fact that in that second he said okay that's when i made my decision what about the fact that he already primed himself thinking okay i'm gonna make my decision when i'm prompted yeah yeah, I think he's completely right. And actually, yeah. that articulates it better than I did. So thank you. I think, <laughs> I think, I think the, the priming is very important because you're also in a scenario where you think this is science. I'm being told this. This must be science. It, and, and, and don't forget the pressure of feeling like a fool if you say, what volition? What intention? I didn't feel anything. Feeling like, like you know, right? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pressure to give that that answer and 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 that relates to you know so am i actually am i is the verbal report even the report of a volition or intention or is it just the report of whenever i finally thought oh i better give an answer now or something right. like, yeah. like what is what is it that's making me say that even um so yeah so i think i think there's, there's there's a lot there to kind of um be skeptical about yeah yeah and you know what's so challenging for me though like so you, i obviously agree with you here and i'm not necessarily saying uh that i'm a hard, even though i am a hard determinist i'm not saying i'm 100 percent the hard determinist but you know with that said so here's where i find the problem with uh i guess i don't want to necessarily call them the free will people but i don't know whatever but people who more so believe that you know your intentions and actions matter more than i would than i would say that they do uh so i'm going to give you another example so i'm sure you know massimo piliucci so uh because massimo is a stoic i mean for him he kind of like he bifurcates uh, activities or actions and so the way he would describe it and this is something i really disagree with so i asked him uh whenever we had him also on the show a couple of years ago and so i asked him you know i said you know massimo like what happens with the personality disorder right so let's say a personality disorder indicates that you know there's bad decision making um so what happens if you know on the one hand like you're saying well you know we're kind of free to choose uh let's say you know we we can choose the things that are within our control and then we could kind of put aside the things that are outside of our control etc right and so but and i would ask i'd say well massimo but like okay but you also have people with personality personality disorders and let's say okay OCPD great example right so the things that I try to control most of the time are things without outside of my control right so the things that I can't really uh that I don't really have much influence on because mm -hmm. I mean that's just the personality style right which I'm not I understand I'm in some control over it uh but the point being said is that the thing that I didn't really uh, agree with and I didn't really understand was how is it so simple and so easy for him to say something like oh well here are these like healthy people and listen I'm not saying he's uh stigmatizing anybody just to be clear so I because I think 
think this is way more intellectual and academic, but he were to say, he would say like, okay, here are like these healthy people, right? So these people are influenced by good reasons. So they can think, okay, here's the right thing to do, or here's a good reason to do something and they would do it. Right. And then on the other hand, he would say, well, okay, but here are these people with, let's say traumatic brain injuries, uh, people, obviously vegetative states. I mean, that's an extreme example. And then I would say, okay, well, and personality disorders. And he would say, yes. And people with personality disorders, right? Like, you know, they need treatment. So then somewhere down the line, they get to this point where, okay, now they're able to make good choices and they're able to think for themselves. And it's not, you know, the person, so he would say the person like clouding, you said it earlier, right? The personality disorder would cloud judgment. Mm -hmm. But then I would argue like, but how do you then make that distinction so neatly? So, okay. Yes. I understand with some things, it's obviously more extreme, like with physical ailments, et cetera, but like with personality issues, I mean, technically we all have uh, these kind of distinct personality styles. So it's like, yes, you could call one a disorder and then the other one, there's not a disorder, you know, fine. I understand. I mean, one actually influences you more negatively than just, you know, personality style. But my point is to say that it's just, it didn't really make sense to me that he could just so easily kind of bifurcate it and say, well, no, no, no. So that's this, here's an example of free will. Here's an example of where like, you know, people make good choices. And here's an example where they don't, because it's not that simple. People with personality disorders don't just make bad choices, but then it's like, okay, if people with personality disorders sometimes do make bad choices, then why is it sometimes their reason is clouded by the personality disorder? And sometimes it's not, this is all very messy. And I guess I just wanted to know what your thoughts on that, because it connects with Libid and obviously, you know, Libid would say, well, you know, none of our decisions are within our religion. And then, but you know, obviously the argument on the other hand with Master will be like, no, 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 it, it's only outside of our decision unless you like, you know, there's some illness involved. But then I would argue, well, even people who are quote unquote ill sometimes make good choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm very sympathetic to, to the things you, you were saying. I don't, I don't know Massimo's like precise arguments for this stuff. So yeah. I don't want to sort of present this yeah, as right, right, wrong right. or whatever. I mean, I, I'm very nervous for one about the, the sort of aligning sort of what might be or even not be kind of statistically normal with, with what's correct or something right. like, like, like that. I, I kind of get very, um, Never. There's a great book called Empire of Normality, Robert Chapman. Mm. Um, you should you should look look into that, Rob Chapman. But 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 like so, I'm kind of even from the outset, kind of very nervous about about these kind of suggestions that these are the the normal personalities or the correct personalities right. or the. I mean, you know, vegetative state is a whole other thing. But like the thought that um, these are somehow superior. Um, um, to those and and the the way I and this is not a it's not original to me but the the, the people I tend to s s sort of follow in this is is people who think look there are certain things certain personalities that are better suited to certain environments so so you know you 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 must have read things things like this so so that you know in a certain kind of environment um, people with these personalities will either right. be happier or tend to do better or whatever. Mm. And in other kind of environments, people who in, in, in the former environments may have been in a kind of weaker position are actually now in, in, a, in a much stronger position. And of course, what happens, and this is kind of Nietzschean, I suppose, is if the people with a certain kind of personality are have more power, they're going to create a bit like Foucault following Nietzsche, they're going to create the kind of environments where they prosper and other people are cast aside as having, you know, not denying that disorders exist, but they're cast aside as having disorders or personality issues and so right. on. And, 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 you know, and, and in a way, there's all this pressure to sort of change ourselves, but actually 
changing environment, you know, whether it's workplace, social life, or changing environment so that the person you already are can do better and and prosper. Um, that's, I think, in most cases, much, much better. Now, of course, I'm, you know, there are going to be limits to this. You know, if my problem is that I'm a serial killer, the answer mm-hmm. isn't, oh, go somewhere where they don't frown upon serial killing or, or, right right um but 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 again if if the serial killer is triggered into killing by certain kinds of things maybe they ought to live in an environment where those things aren't present yeah yeah and you know what i was thinking was um in terms of like personality traits right obviously that's an extreme example but like something like attention seeking so oftentimes people um so obviously i mean i have patience with that behavior i mean obviously everybody does but like so when i talk to some therapists they'll say like oh you know like this person is attention seeking and i'm like i don't get like why that's a bad thing and so like for some people they have like this really kind of innate distaste for it they're like oh you know how dare this person seek attention and i'm like okay i understand it's kind of like you know i guess a low-grade quality in some sense i mean you know you would want the person to have more sort of internal self-esteem sure but i'm like but i don't get why you feel so offended by it don't get me wrong i'm not saying i'm above any of this because there are some traits that i definitely detest but like attention seeking is just an example of one that i don't where i'm like i don't get it who cares the person is seeking attention and so it's just i guess what you're saying i'm agreeing with because i'm saying that yeah in some environments and even with some therapists a person would say well i mean listen if you want to change the attention seeking like so here's probably some of the reasons why you should uh you know you could maybe think about it but like ultimately no attention seeking in itself isn't necessarily a terrible trait but yes, in some environments, especially more like religious ones, people are like, oh, my God, like how dare this person? And it's like in some ways ungodly in some circles to think like this person thinks they deserve attention. Like, what are you, Jesus? So. Hmm. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there's kind of trends and fashions around these stuff as well. But in, so, in some environments, like, you know, you'll prosper through attention seeking and in, and in, in other environments, you'll be shamed. Um, because of it now you know you and i may may think regardless of this there's a truth to the matter as to whether it's virtuous or not or whatever but in terms of sheer sort of how one how one sort of lives in a world that 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 can really change and and, you know the reason i said fashion is i was kind of thinking of kind of music genres and 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 think of kind of when like you, you know when Again, it's kind of quite Nietzsche. When when grunge came into in, mm. into fashion, you guys are a bit too young for this. But when grunge came into into fashion, mm. all the things that were virtuous before, whether in pop music or hard rock, became vices, and all the things that were vices before suddenly became became virtues. So so attention seeking was kind of bad if you're kind of grungy, right? You, right. So you don't, or, or at least a certain form of showing off. Or, or or whatever almost being a good music i i love grunge by the way but almost being a good musician was was a vice in that context right so what you happen is things flipped and the people who before would have been ridiculed for x y and z those are the very features that they've now created an environment where the these are the positives and the thing to be ridiculed is all the stuff that people were showing off you know couple of years earlier um so 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 these things can kind of change in these ways 
Right. And I love that perspective so much because again, something like attention seeking. So like in the, so I'll use uh, your framework since I mean, you seem to know a lot about like metal rock, et cetera. Right. So like in the eighties, you know, it was really popular. So like bands like poison, you know, skid row, like these been the attention seeking bands, you know, the prima donnas or whatever you mm. want to call them. So these were the popular ones. And then sort of, it became more modest. Cause like Kurt Cobain, like, I mean, for the people who know about him, obviously like Kurt Cobain was incredibly modest. He actually hated attention for the most part. Like he kind of had to do it because he wanted mm -hmm. his music out there. But again, it sort of keeps flipping right and then in the 90s when rap music became a really popular genre like now it became again you know jay-z's i mean Pac was to whatever extent attention seeking i mean he definitely shifted uh like from time to time but like somebody like a jay-z like he so he was super attention seeking right and again i don't it's not necessarily a bad thing but with that being said it's kind of interesting even how environments can change you know we're talking about like moving to different environments and becoming different fits but it's sort of also interesting how like in one era something is good and normal and then in another era it's considered immoral so now going in to the conversation about ethics you know i guess really the question is outside of like these golden rules that we have you know don't kill anybody obviously uh don't intentionally harm them etc i mean i guess how important are ethics and i know this is going to be kind of a silly question but really with these environments even changing from time to time right how important really are ethics or or rather how do we determine what is right or wrong yeah, action that's a especially question. in these different contexts yeah yeah especially when things keep changing yeah yeah so so that that was something that that kind of did motivate some of the stuff in, in, in this book. So I, I was kind of interested in how we judge past behavior. Um, and and it, it, this stuff, I mean, we, you know, unless we have very concrete, concrete examples, it, 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 it's very hard to do, but, but to just kind of slow, slowly sort of sketch something, um, it, it, there's a kind of difficulty in, in judging behavior from like a century ago or something. Right. Because on the one hand, you don't want to sort of say morality has, not morality as a social construct, but what's actually right or wrong has changed, right. you know? So on the one hand, it's not as if, oh, it was perfectly fine morally to have slaves a hundred years ago or, or whatever. It's wrong now, but it wasn't wrong then, right? So on the one hand, there's this kind of, um, Pressure is the wrong word because that sounds kind of negative. That, 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 that there's this kind of quite very good reasons for thinking no, you know, if that behavior is is wrong because it fails to treat you, you know fellow humans as being the same as me, then that is is wrong. And anyone who couldn't see it, there, there's a trouble in their moral perception, right? So. Uh, and the behaviors that follow from it are inhumane and 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 worse. So so that that's got to be true. On the other hand, there's something kind of unfair judging past societies by things that um, we've if if our education in school and beyond has been very different from people who were taught things, maybe brainwashed, right? Sure. So it's not that the behavior was fine; the behavior was. Um, com completely repulsive and and so on but the person behaving that way um it's not that they're necessarily to be excused and that's why i said you have to really take particular cases and particular people but there's going to be a difference between someone who's been brainwashed into thinking even this is science about all sorts of racist crap and whatever and and a person who's had a more uh, you know, not that education today is that enlightened, but a comparatively enlightened education or, or whatever. So when we come to, and that's where for me, when you come to judge the doing of the thing versus the thing done, 
th there all this other stuff comes in. It's not just motive and intention, it's belief, it's education, it's, it's culture, it's, um, so there, you know, the thing done is, is as wrong as it would be today. It's, it, it's not, not even that much better. Um, but, but the doing of it, that can be more complicated. And it's not that the doing of it is to be excused, let alone justified, but in terms of sort of mitigation or even just kind of um, forgiveness that, 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 you know, it's, it's much harder to forgive someone who do that today. Mm -hmm. Right. Does that make sense? It's not, it's yeah, not to absolutely. sort of, sort of, well, uh, I mean, slavery may be a bad example because it's an, an extreme example, but um it was so whatever i mean i'm vegan meat eating am i gonna judge people who ate meat 100 years ago whatever right right, right. yeah so then i have uh, two thoughts so i would say okay something like slavery uh okay wow i just so i like have a million thoughts going on in my mind okay so with uh with something like slavery right but can't we just say that that would just be subsumed under the golden rule because i mean ultimately nobody wants to be a slave right so you can make the case and say that a lot of these people just weren't being fair because i mean you know these they treated other people as subhuman and fundamentally they wouldn't want that right so whereas i would say that's a little bit different from something like attention seeking because i I don't I, I just think a lot of it is based on envy. I don't really think attention seeking is good or bad. I think it's one of those ethical norms that kind of changes with the times for whatever reason. I, I actually don't know. I can't really speak on it, but it just seems like it's a little bit more subjective and a, really, a little bit more relative, whereas opposed to like slavery, I think it's obviously bad because most of us would say, yeah, we don't want to fucking be slaves and we don't deserve it. So that's my first thought. And then the second thought, and I don't mean to like convolute all of this, so you don't have to even respond to the, well, you don't have to respond to any of them, but you don't have to respond to all of them. Uh, but the second thought is right. But this this is why I am a hard determinist because there's so many factors involved in decision making. Whereas I think, you know, we would think, oh, well, it seems like the person is making the choice, but ultimately, yes, it's their education, uh, it's their mental health, it's the support that they had, the support that they didn't have. Um, it's, let's say, the fact that they didn't have particular resources, whatever, right? So, with that being said, I think that's kind of why Libet would say, well, yes, that's why kind of we make decisions without actually making decisions. There's this whole host and uh, this whole kind of confluence of factors that we're not aware of, right? Now, we're getting into kind of Freudian territory. So there's so many things that we're not aware of in the kind of seeming, you know, the teeming unconscious or whatever. And it's always affecting us every single day. And even though after the fact, we can say, well, here's why I made the decision. I mean, ultimately, we don't really know why. Or at the very least, let's say if I'm not going to be too extreme, we can say that we don't fully understand why we did what we did. So that's why for me, ethics is such a, I guess, challenging category of just like philosophy, because I think it's much easier to think about what's truth as opposed to what's right or wrong. Because again, if you look at the context, you you can say, well, obviously this person is going to be racist. I mean, look at the environment that they grew up in. I grew up in a racist environment and everybody I knew, including myself for a very long time was racist. I mean, because I was like, yeah, how could it be otherwise? Uh, until like, you know, let's say we got into a multicultural, let's say school at the time when I became, I don't know, whatever, when I, when I went to public school. Right. So, but with that being said, until I understood what diversity was, until I was able to identify with people of other races, there was just no way for me to be different. So that's why I kind of asked like, you know, is it really ethics that's, that's the problem? or is it more of an environmental issue it's not so or maybe it's both right maybe um it's a kind of chicken or egg or an either or question that's kind of stupid but the point being said is that i just think that there's such a or there probably is so much of a focus on ethics when honestly man most of the time when you just focus on environments people just kind of get it they don't think too deeply so i i remember when i was a kid and i was like oh hey i'm friends with this like african-american kid i didn't really think about like whether or not you know what i should be doing to him was right wrong or whatever i kind of just did it and that's 
what I think Libet is kind of getting at. Libet is saying most of our actions, if not, you know, maybe not all of them, but most of our actions aren't really, uh, they're not thought out. We just kind of do things. We sort of respond to the environment, like in the sense of stimulus response. So even if, let's say, yes, there are beliefs obviously underlying that, I just don't think we think too deeply about them. Yeah, so I don't, I, I guess I don't think it's an either or. Maybe yeah. this is agreeing with, with you. So, so it looks like, I mean, the personal example is, is nice. So thank you for sharing that. So it looks like, you know, from an ethics point of view, you know, you can now see and say that it's not the case that it was okay to be racist um, before, right? So you'd got something very wrong. Um, but, but, um, but now, in, and, and, and nor should it be that you, you just give yourself a pass because you didn't know better or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, you were a product of a certain society and right there's an explanation um for why one would have had that belief system in that time and 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 place and and whatever now that doesn't do anything to to justify the perception or behavior or or, or whatever but what it does do is is you compare that person to someone who has a very different sort of upbringing and situation, and yet they're also racist. And 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 then it looks like there's something very different um, going on there. And and then it's it's tempting to say to judge the other person much more harshly. And, right. Right. And that kind of expression. Well, you should know better. <laughs> um, really comes to light because I th I think you're right that you know when it comes to who we are. Um, so, so I'm not a hard determinist, but I do think 99% of this stuff is, is luck of various yeah. kinds, whether it's constitutive luck or, or um, um, sort of situational luck or, or whatever. So there's so much luck in kind of de determining who, who we are. And, and then there's that kind of, you know, what, I don't completely subscribe to this view, but Helen Stewart talks of like flickers of freedom or whatever. So, mm -hmm. so there may, you know, we can disagree about this, but then it, it's like all this stuff, I wasn't responsible for all this stuff. And yet here I am, and it looks like I can make some kind of um, um, decision or whatever. But of course the eye that's making the decision is not an eye that I've sort of self-created from, from out of nowhere um or, or or anything like that um so i mean look that's not going to answer everything but it kind of yeah, positions me in relation to what you were saying yeah yeah and i would always think in terms of just personality issues i mean you could even be in an environment that's relatively conducive to uh let's say multiculturalism and you have people with like let's say narcissistic personality disorder and it just it doesn't matter you kind of try to influence them and you try to help them see they're like hey you know these people are like you and for those people they need to feel superior so they're not just racist they're also homophobic they're sexist they're a million isms you know and the reason why is that because they need to be right there's that kind of personality structure that's preventing them from uh, just being more collaborative with people more generally but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, these are tough questions. I mean, I just, um, I mean, I still just struggle just like with where the dividing lines are. That's why I mentioned Massimo's example, because I feel like for a lot of philosophers, it's especially with analytical philosophers, you know, it's so easy for them to kind of categorize and conceptualize, although, and it's, you know, they make great arguments. I mean, Massimo's fucking brilliant, like a legit genius. But even still, you know, I kind of wonder, I'm like, how are you so sure of this? Because I think these lines are way fuzzier than, you know, they would seem to be. So they definitely are fuzzy, but I think like a very good 
example because racism for example is a very extreme example mm -hmm. if we take let's say meat eating or what something like that say in in the future this is just a hypothetical let's say everyone is vegan or everyone eats artificially lab-grown meat no one eats actual meat but then they look at the uh, events of the past they see uh you know people you know quote unquote butchered animals or factory farming that sort of thing and then harshly judge the people of that time what's interesting is where like i think that people when judging ethics should take into account the context of the time that you know especially when judging events of the past where somebody grew up in right right so if that was something that was acceptable mm. if that was how people uh, obtain their food let's say going back a hundred years mm -hmm. all right if you if you want to judge the present okay fair enough maybe somebody can make an argument no we actually can make this shift to right. other forms of food but yeah like uh if that was what it was i mean should we necessarily um say what they were doing was uh quote unquote wrong mm -hmm. well i think that's where it gets fuzzy and being an absolutist about it and saying no they're they're 100 wrong i think that wouldn't be necessarily the best direction to go into. Right. It would be just sort of respecting the context of the time that maybe someone grew, uh, grew up in. Right. Well, depending on what, like, because with slavery, obviously we wouldn't. And I don't of, think, yeah, again, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, 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 right. That, right. That's why right. I'm saying, like, it, it depends. Like, there are certain things, like, well, I don't know, constantly. I, I, no, no, I think, I think the slavery example is so extreme that in a way it's the wrong one for these kind of things and right. the meat eating one is better. So I think I kind of half agree with you. So, so on my view, I mean, on, it's a separate question whether I'm right about this. So, so on, on, on my view, it's wrong to, to kill animals for food unless maybe you would otherwise die or, or, or you know, some extreme situation. And even then it's complicated. Um, and, and I think if, that, if that's wrong in a way that that's always been wrong, you know, bar situations where people really would die if they didn't do it. Right. That said, so I don't think that it's like it wasn't wrong then and now it's wrong. That said, you know, it's very easy for someone, uh, you know, I can walk into a shop and get like, you know, 20 varieties of vegan sausages and vegan bur burgers right, and vegan right. mayonnaise. It's very easy for me to say, hey, be <laughs> vegan compared to someone even 20 years ago, let alone 50, 100, <laughs> 1,000 years ago, right? So so on, on, on the one hand, so that's where, you know, it's so much easier for me to do this that I can't compare myself to someone eating meat even even 20 years ago quite mm -hmm. frankly um including my own self maybe 25 years ago I lost ate meat or whatever right so so I I um so that there's that kind of um thing at the same time you know there were vegans in Aristotle's time right so so that so then you you have a look at people and and now they seem to me way more virtuous than me i don't know if i could have been vegan in that scenario mm -hmm. whatever i would be but it's even even you know me with my own beliefs and personality if i went into a time machine and i'm out there and i'm like where are all my you know alternatives mm -hmm. and they're like oh no no it's just you, you, you know it's just fava beans and, and, and you, you know, no no unbelievable whoppers and, yeah. and, and olives or whatever right mm -hmm. yeah so 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 it's so it's not just vice it's also virtue like those people seem way more virtuous to me than than a vegan today imagine doing that then 
you know, with that belief system and those limited options. So it kind of works both ways. And that's why I think in terms of the thing done, I don't think the rightness or wrongness changes over time. But in terms of was it more virtuous to be vegan then than now? I would say yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Or to be anti-slavery then than now? It took more bravery, more more courage. You were risking more. You, You know, it's... I'm not risking anything if I tweet something against slavery now. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, um, so, so, so I think both virtue and vice kind of flip. Not the rightness or wrongness or the of the action, um, but the of the doing. That kind of um, the the sort of um, the goodness of of the doing and the virtual vice in a person doing these things. I think that's what changes over time rather than the, the rightness or wrongness of the thing done, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, as we start to wrap up, so the thing that I'm thinking of is, I guess it doesn't really matter, you know, whether like Libet's right or wrong. I mean, because fundamentally, so here, I mean, this is my argument, you know, I would say, so the reason why I'm uh, more so of a hard determinist than anything else is because, I mean, yes, even though we can't probabilistically say like, okay, this person is more likely, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me actually, let me reframe that. So even though um, we don't know what a person is going to do, I think people often get caught up in the conception of probability and they think, oh, just because there's a chance that this person will do this over this, that means they have free will. Uh, technically, I don't think that that makes sense because from my understanding, you just don't really know what the factors are. So if you probably, if there's a good chance, if you knew, you know, you probably would be able to say something like, okay, so I know what all the factors are. You know, this is what this person is going to do. Obviously, the reason why we talk in probabilities is because we don't know that. But I think people mistake probability for free will. Like in quantum mechanics, not to get into this too much, but there's a sort of sense, oh, because there's randomness in the universe. Again, because we can't really predict much of anything. You can say it's also inherent, fine. But like that means that like sort of this some decider or whatever. So, but whatever, my point is to say that ultimately the reason why I don't think it necessarily matters is because what I hear you saying, Constantine, is that if you're introducing enough factors into the system, if you, you know, let's say you do introduce an ethical system, you do introduce inspiration, right, from the past, eventually people are going to change. Eventually they're going to take ethics more seriously. And ultimately what our goal is more broadly is to build a just and a good society. So I guess it doesn't really matter whether Libet was right or wrong. I mean, fundamentally, we are organisms who are striving for the good. You know, even if it's not necessarily the good of all, you know, maybe not in the beginning, at some point or other, you know, as you mature, you kind of realize, oh, shit, if these people are like flourishing, and they're doing well, ultimately, I'm going to do the same. So you can't really live in a just society, or I'm sorry, you can't have a a justice for yourself if everybody can't have justice, because eventually they'll come for you. So my point in all of this is to say that all of this matters. I really, really like that we got to this point. And fundamentally, yes, again, whether, you know, determinism, free will, it's not really even that important. Um, Okay, so, <laughs> so wait, I, just... I, 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 yeah, yeah. Sorry, can I just? I, yeah. I like that. There's something quite Wittgensteinian in what you said because it, it's as if you know, if if someone were to come down from on high with a bunch of 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 proofs and was like, "There is no free will. Here it is," and we all read the proofs and we all agreed with them. Um, then what? <laughs> Do we just carry on? We just carry on. <laughs> Yeah. the same or yeah. or yeah. or anything goes and suddenly you know so it's not that that debate it's not that yeah, you know, it's a very important debate for all sorts of reasons of course and and because it helps us understand how we relate to our actions and our environment and all this stuff but yeah there's there's something about about this you know you, you know and having to take responsibility for one's own actions but also knowing that you know when it comes to sort of 
um, judging other people that there can be all sorts of mitigating circumstances and, and, and not just assuming full free will and passing on you know, ex extreme um, judgments and so on. Sorry, I did interrupt you there. No, no, that, that was great. I was actually going to ask like, if you had a response before we wrap up. Yeah, so why I really like that is because ultimately, again, we're fundamentally saying the same thing. We're saying that when you when you look at like what's good and what helps people flourish, like that seems to be the most important thing for you, like in understanding reasons and understanding you know uh, actions. We're, we're, what you're pretty much getting to is some sort of applied version of philosophy where we get to understand or whatever, build a more just or a better society for all of us. I That's what I hear you saying, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't. It's not that I'm presenting some great plan for how to have a yeah, right. a, a just society. This is kind of you know very pre preliminary um, steps. But but yeah, it's it's about sort of unless we do this preliminary stuff of of trying to understand the relation of kind of what what is an action, what are the reasons for an action, what's the difference between an act and an omission, what is it. Is there such a thing as doing nothing, or is is it that in not doing one thing, I'm doing another? And you know, unless we understand these things, we can't just enter some abstract debate about which is the correct theory of right action, and then try and make social political decisions based on that 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 theory. If we haven't done um, the other stuff, but the other side of the coin is if you just do the other stuff with no concern for um for ethics then that's kind of empty in a way um you know if you you're going back to that kind of philosophy of mind stuff i began with but you're not thinking of action as the kind of thing that, that could even be right or wrong then that that's kind of mi missing out on on a, a big part of what what matters right right because we're not just machines yeah okay mm -hmm. alan final questions for constantine as we wrap up Ah, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Where can you do that? Um, I don't know. Don't follow me in person, <laughs> but you can follow me. Wow, you nobody's can... ever said that before. That's so good. You can uh, follow me <laughs> online, preferably. Um, so um, you, you can... Uh, get the book most places online but if you get it from um it's published by bloomsbury and if you yep. go on bloomsbury.com and look for it um i think currently bloomsbury have a sale anyway but you can get yes, they do they do 35 percent off with action ethics 35 i want to say um so if you if if when you're checking out you put action ethics 35 you'll, you'll get 35 percent off um i am on um is it called X or is it called X? We still call it Twitter. Twitter. What's the name? What's the name? Yeah. So, so I'm I'm there. I'm in most places as just uh, C Sandis. Um, so that's probably um, the, the easiest way um, to find me. I I sort of I've sort of I'm still there. I've I've been playing around with Blue Sky. You guys should join. Hmm. Um, it's I don't curious. Even know what that there's, is. there's no. It's, you, it's like Twitter. Um, but, yeah. but there's no adverts now. So there's oh. none of that kind of there's increasing noise, right? So it doesn't have the noise. On the other hand, there's not as many interesting people yet. So mm. I don't I don't know. I don't know yet. Um I get it. It's a lot of time investment and you're not sure. Um but yeah, those th those are probably um and the best places. I mean, 
things like Instagram, unless you like cats and dogs, don't follow me there, <laughs> or vegan food. Uh-huh. You're not going to get much, much else. All right, Constantine, thank you so much, this man. Awesome. This was such a phenomenal discussion. It's always great to talk with you guys. So, so thank you. Thanks a yeah, lot. Absolutely. Man. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. All right. That was awesome. So again, everybody, uh, if you would like to uh, you know, buy the book, you can go to bloomsbury.com. Again, the, uh, the discount code is actionethics35. You'll get 35% off when entered at the checkout on bloomsbury.com. And this code is valid until August 31st, 2025. Otherwise, if you like the episode, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time. Thank you.